part of the ordination procedure when we become a Buddhist monk <coughs> is that we take dependence, ask for dependence from the Upajaya, the preceptor. The word is Nisaya, where we establish the relationship between preceptor and ordinary or student. Sometimes the preceptor will pass on the um, responsibility to an acharya if the monk goes to live in another monastery. <clears throat> it's very much at the foundation of our lifestyle in Theravada Buddhist monastery, take dependence on the teacher or the preceptor. And it's a mutual responsibility. The teacher has to look after the student, the student looks after the teacher. The word Nisaya in Thai, it's Nisai. It's also that word is used for describing somebody's character. <clears throat> character traits or personality. And when we come into the robes, the whole training in Dhamma Vinaya, the way of practice, the Eightfold Path, and the Vinaya training given to us by the Buddha. It's based on the principle that as humans we can train and cultivate <coughs> this mind and we can abandon unwholesome, unskillful tendencies and we can develop, cultivate skillful, wholesome tendencies and ultimately we can purify the mind from ignorance and delusion which is the cause for craving, attachment and suffering. So we all have that potential for change if the conditions, the right conditions come about through our practice. It's based on also the understanding of the law of karma, that we are the product, product of our intentional actions. Whether we experience happiness, suffering, the result of our intentional actions, more or less. And there's no external force that's controlling that or that can interfere or change things for our benefit or our detriment. The gods and the devas can't interfere with the law of karma however powerful they may be, 
Karma is karma. Causes lead to results. And that's actually very, that's impersonal. There's no one controlling it. Even though for conventional purposes we talk about a person who makes karma. But what's happening is cause and result. So our whole training and practice is based around, you might say, developing the good causes and abandoning the unwholesome, unskillful causes. Until ultimately the mind is purified of greed, anger and delusion and experiences the liberation, the freedom of Nibbāna. And they say only a Buddha completely gives up all previous character traits. <clears throat> the word again is vāsana, in Thai or vāsana in, in Pāli. The Buddha takes on the characteristics, character traits of a great man, Mahapurisalaksana, physical, mental. But even arahants still have some traces of their character and personality through one lifetime, maybe many lifetimes. The mind is no longer deluded or attached to those character traits. There's no more, there's no more karma being made, no more attachment, but they may still be there. <clears throat> So the famous example is Venerable Sariputta, who for many lifetimes had been a monkey. And they say even in his final life as Sariputta, the great general of the Dhamma, in the right hand bhikkhu of the Buddha, his great wisdom, when going on Bindabhata and encountering a puddle, he would always jump over like a monkey. Other bhikkhus might just walk around the puddle. He would jump over. He's an arahant, completely undefiled, pure, untainted mind, completely mindful, but still has some residue of the character traits of a monkey. But the principle of our practice and the, the way it works is based on the fact that this mind can be trained to see Dhamma, penetrate the Dhamma, the Four Noble Truths, and abandon the causes of suffering. This can be done if we treat it properly, develop it properly. Nothing is fixed or determined, so none of us are destined to always be <laughs> suffering and miserable. <coughs> we have the chance to practice and rise up out of suffering and misery through this training, Dhamma Vinaya. When Ajahn Chah was a young bhikkhu, his 
having begun his life as a wandering forest monk, Tudonga monk, he went down to a part of Thailand called Lopburi, central Thailand, looking for a teacher. He'd heard about an enlightened teacher, Lumpur Pao. After he'd been a monk for a few years studying in the local monastery in Ubon, learning Pali and learning the suttas. Now he wanted to pursue the Dhamma and the Vinaya and he went down to Lopuri, but Lumpur Pao had died. Then he later heard of Lumpur Man, who was the foremost meditation master of that period in the 1940s. <coughs> and so from Lopuri he began a, a journey walking back to Ubon, his hometown, and then up to Sakonakon, the province where Lumpur Man spent the last years of his life before he died in about 1949. So he walked for hundreds of kilometers to get to Lumpur Man's monastery to meet him. He only spent a few days there. He said when he arrived in the monastery, he was very tired from his walk, but the atmosphere in the monastery was immediately uplifting. It was very peaceful, quiet, forest, just an ordinary forest, nothing special, but it's very peaceful and quiet. All the paths and the compound had been swept and tidy. Even though the buildings were very poor and simple, everything was very neat, tidy in its place. The monks were very quiet, going about their business mindfully. So he immediately felt uplifted understanding this is a place where monks are training. It's always been the way, <coughs> even since the time of the Buddha. So one of the ways people would recognize a disciple, a monk who is a disciple of the Buddha, as opposed from other sects, other teachers, was the way they were always quiet and mindful, the way they went about their business on Bindabhata or in the monastery. They always loved seclusion, being in quiet places. And they didn't chatter a lot in loud voices in large groups, whereas some of the other ascetics and Brahmins did. So Lumpur Man's monastery seemed to have that flavor that Ajahn Chah perhaps had imagined from the suttas and from his study so he said he immediately felt, oh, this is a place people are practicing, peaceful atmosphere. And that was verified when he met the monks and particularly Lumpur Man, who gave a talk every night for several nights while he was there. And he also had some doubts about the practice, the normal doubts about, firstly about the practice of the Vinaya because the more you study, the more you realize how many rules there are and sub-rules and variations, and it seems endless. The Vinaya Pitaka is many volumes, many pages of information, many rules, practices to be done. And he felt it's not practical to maybe always remember every rule and 
be kind of constantly remembering and knowing each rule day by day. But Lumpur Man went straight to the heart of the practice of the Vinaya and talked about the two qualities of Hiri Otapa as what's required at the heart of the Vinaya. All the rules come back to that, down to these two qualities which the Buddha had called the guardians or the protectors of the world. <clears throat> Hiri is often translated as shame. Otapa is a fear of the consequences of wrongdoing. And these two qualities protect the world, but the world here can mean the internal world of the mind. They protect the mind from falling into evil, unwholesome ways, but also on the outside, protect one's conduct and the conduct of groups of people. If people have hiriotopa, they can live together without conflict. Hiri, in this word shame, it's important to remember it's a wholesome, skillful quality of mind. That it's based on recognizing the value of a human mind. It's our most valuable, precious asset or the things we have. This is the most precious. Something to be valued, looked after. It's based on that awareness that the mind is something to be looked after, not to be damaged or harmed. So it's a wholesome, skillful quality. It's not guilt. They often the word shame is associated with guilt, regret, but it's a wholesome quality, the sort of automatic springing back, stepping back from an evil thought, an unwholesome thought, or the thought of doing something unskillful. <clears throat> Even the Buddha once was approached by a yaka, a very evil yaka, they call him the yaka with the needle-like hair, or covered in hair, this big yaka, it's kind of spiky hair, <laughs> maybe like a punk rocker, who knows. Very kind of mischievous, aggressive yaka, as many were in those days. And he saw the Buddha and he wanted to know whether the Buddha was a real salmana, a real monk, or just a fake. So he had a question for the Buddha and he came up and he said, if you answer my question satisfactorily, good. If you don't, I'm going to sort of destroy you and throw you across the river or something like that. The usual kind of threat. And he walked right up to the Buddha, literally just sort of stood in front of him and touched him. And the Buddha immediately recoiled, the story says. And so the Yaka says, so oh, you're afraid of me? And the Buddha said, no, I have no fear in my mind. But you have so much evil, I'm just stepping back from the evil negative energy in you. Shame is a bit like this. It's not based on a just a blind fear or timidity, shyness. It's it's coming from wisdom, recognizing that there's there are mental states and ways of behaviour that harm us, and not wanting to be harmed, not let, wanting to let the mind be harmed, and that leads on to otapa, 
which is fear of the consequences of unskillful evil actions. That's partly the external consequences, so it's fear of blame, fear of criticism, the consequences in society. But then also internally, just the fear of the karma, knowing that this will lead to karma if I indulge in this negative thought, speech, mood, or, or action. <clears throat> so these two qualities, Lumpurman said, these are the heart of the Vinaya. And if you really preserve them, your mind is going to be always in a wholesome, virtuous state. And all the other rules will come out of these two qualities. You know, taking care of what we say, what we do. If you run through the Patimoka rules or even the extended rules in the Vinaya and all the different practices we have, you know, Hiriyotapa is always going to be at, at the heart of any rule. You're not harming others, not harming oneself. Practice a right livelihood the way we obtain our requisites, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves. Hiriyotapa is what protects us from falling into ways that will create negative karma, conflict with others, taking advantage of others, and protects us from having to experience the mental agitation of regret and sadness or anger from when we do follow unwholesome ways. That was one very important teaching that probably just confirmed what Ajahn Chah already knew, but Lumpur Man just set it out that these two qualities are what a practitioner needs. <clears throat> so that's beyond just book knowledge, which Lumpur Chah already had. Book knowledge alone isn't enough. It has to be you know, the practice, the mental cultivation of Hiriyotapa and preserving Hiriyotapa. That's taking the, the knowledge we have from the suttas and the Vinaya and putting into practice every day. Preserving, you might say, our peace of mind, purity of mind. The other thing that Lumpur Man emphasized was the ability to know mental states as an dukkha anatta. So the heart of the forest tradition is about developing this quality. They talk about the one who knows, the puru, or the quality of knowing, awareness, mindfulness. The more one develops that quality, one gets the firmness, steadiness of mind and stillness of mind that allows the mind to see mental states arising, being there and then passing away, and to understand the impermanent, transient nature of mental states, mental impressions. It's that. Again, Lumpur Man emphasized that as the very heart of the practice. So whatever character traits we do have, our personality, our character that we bring into the monastery and into our practice, 
you can't do much about that. You know, you've got what you've got from the past, your personality, what you've done before you're a monk. You bring that with you. But it's more once you're practicing and training, how do you deal with it? And it's developing right view <clears throat> based on this one who knows. It's seeing and knowing the impermanence of mental states. <coughs> And in the beginning, particularly, the unwholesome mental states that tend to come up a lot when we start practicing. It's establishing that right view, seeing them as a Nietzsche. What's a Nietzsche, impermanent, is not self, because it's impermanent. It comes and it goes. It arises, ceases. This is the heart, the foundation of our meditation practice, even though, again, in, on paper, we describe the, the Eightfold Path, the practice of samadhi, right effort, the four foundations of mindfulness, and so on, and in great detail, which is very helpful. But it comes back down to training in this quality of the knowing in the present moment, not allowing the mind to slip away unmindfully into proliferation about the future, neither unmindfully dwelling on the past, but training in bringing up the present moment mindfulness, the one who knows, that allows us to see the impermanent nature of our mental activity, feelings, bodily feelings, mental feeling, sense contact, sense impressions, and even the, the body itself as an object, the transient changing nature of the body, seeing it as a collection of parts and elements, the four elements. So these two points, Lumpur Man emphasized in his talks to Lumpur Cha and he took them away as very important and obviously confirmed to him possibly what he already had understood. Because he didn't stay there very long with Lumpur Man, just a few days. But as he said later, you know, if your eyes are clear, you don't need to look for very long to see the truth, to see what is what. If your eyes are open and clear, then just a few days with a great teacher is enough to understand what they're teaching, how to practice. So our practice and training in the monastery is based around these principles in learning to use the Vinaya training, the background in listening to Dhamma, reading and studying, but then focusing in the development of mindful awareness, and the one who knows, to actually experience the Dhamma for ourselves. <clears throat> Sometimes they say people tend to fall into two categories. There are those who are, you might say, full of faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, whatever the Buddha says, instructs, they'll do it, they'll follow, absolutely committed. That 
belief and commitment is very naturally very strong for them or in a teacher. So if the teacher is teaching the right thing in the enlightened way, a way to enlightenment, then they'll just do it. Maybe without question at all, they'll just do it. And that can lead to realization because they're getting good instructions. The other kind of practitioners are more, maybe start off with more skeptical doubt and they're more wisdom orientated and they really have to look and learn through their curiosity and their investigation until they gain more experience and then they'll really believe what the Buddha or what their teacher says is true. But both categories of people, they're both going in the same direction towards enlightenment, but we have to get to know our character. And some people's faith and confidence is strong, others it's weaker, and they have to listen a lot, practice a lot, until they start to grow in confidence. You get to know your character, and obviously other aspects of character that we bring into the practice. Some are more inclined towards sensuality and lust, some are more inclined towards dosa, anger and aversion, ill will. Some are doubters, some are worriers. We all have a, a certain amount of each kind of mental kalesa collected, accumulated in our character, but you probably find there are some that come up more than others, or sometimes it's a periodic thing. Like when I was a young monk at, in Thailand at Wat Nanachat, Wat Bapong, the, the joke always was, your first five years as a monk, now a car, you're just dealing with aversion. Having had all the freedom as a lay person to follow your desires and kilesas, suddenly in the Vinaya and in the training of the monastery, you're restricted and limited. It brings up a lot of frustration, irritation and aversion. Living with other people who are not necessarily your friends or people you particularly get on with. Lots of aversion, lots of ill will. In your first five years is just learning how to patiently and peacefully live with other people, live with your own defilements, live with the restrictions of the Vinaya. Then once you've got through that, they say, the general tendency is over the next five years as the aversion starts to fade and get less. And you're just thinking, oh, everything's good now, all my irritation and negativity is gone. And then suddenly you're hit with lust. It's very common to hear Nawaka monks saying, oh, I don't have much problem with lust, don't think about it. Women much, don't have many fantasies or lustful desires. But once the negativity fades, then it all comes up. <coughs> Obviously, it's not always like this, but <coughs> it's a common experience. It's like you're going deeper into the heart of your kalesas. Once the negativity has faded, then the real cause of our attachments, desires, attachments is lust. Based on our attachment to this body, the lust, the desire for pleasure, sexual pleasure, pleasant feelings, and then all the offshoots, because a lot of our desire, even though it's not directly linked to sexual pleasure and lust, it's 
still supporting it, the way we attach to our bodies and our ego and the way we present ourselves to the world. Even just knowing things, knowledge can come across as, as a way just to impress people, particularly the opposite sex, as a, as a kind of a subtle way of expressing lust, desire for power, authority, desire for material possessions, material wealth and so on can all be spreading out from basic lust for life, lust for, lustful desire. And of course the very desire for life itself. Something Ajahn Chah used to invite us to think about every day. Why was I born? Why am I here? And what is it? What is the karma, karmic cause for birth? Well, it's lust, isn't it? It's desire for a body. When you die as a human being, or any other realm, if you haven't seen through craving and attachment as an Ichadukha Anatta, then there'll be desire for birth to take on another form at death. You know, we don't want to die, that's why we get afraid of death. That's what drives rebirth or birth, comes from the desire for life, have another body to see things, smell things, taste things, do it all over again, even though you're destined to experience a lot of suffering once you're born, the mind just doesn't get it, it still wants more birth. So it's lust that brings us to be born. That's why we're here. So when you're getting down to contemplate, you know, the very desire for having a human body, using the senses to find more pleasure, more excitement, stimulation, and you're looking at the very craving and attachment that is the cause of ultimately of our suffering. Of course, we tend not to see that whole process through until we start practicing mindfulness and start restraining our lust a little bit. And that's what the Vinaya training and the meditation mindfulness practice we're doing here is, is doing. We're learning to restrain our desire, our craving and attachment. So in the beginning there's a lot of fr frustration, negativity, because you're not getting what you want. You're not getting the food you want, to sleep when you want sometimes, the comforts you want. Keeping celibate, you don't get any kind of sexual pleasure and so on. There's a lot of frustration and negativity we have to deal with. The only way to successfully deal with that is to start cultivating some of the joy, the happiness from the practice to balance up the mind. So the joy of, some, for some people, just reflecting on being a disciple of the Buddha, having met with the Dhamma, being a human being, having the opportunity to practice, even that much brings some joy to the heart. And then developing skillful qualities in the practice of generosity, service, kindness, brings us a lot of joy. The restraint of sila, living in a virtuous way, not harming anybody. 
brings us joy, happiness. And then of course the practice, the development of meditation, learning to restrain the five hindrances through developing this one who knows, abandoning unwholesome mental states, cultivating wholesome mental states through the practice of meditation. We start to experience the more subtle happiness of a peaceful mind comes with the factors of samadhi. And usually at first it's only brief glimpses, but it's still satisfying to the mind, enough to give it some contentment, <clears throat> what we call kanika samadhi. So brief moments where the mind gathers together and the hindrances subside. It's only for a brief period of time, maybe even a few moments or a few minutes, then tends to fade out, but it's enough to give us some idea of what the peaceful mind is like when the hindrances have gone. Gives us some joy, happiness, and feeds the mind, nourishes the mind with pity and sukha so we can carry on practicing. Then maybe later on as we practice more and become more skilled in abandoning the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome, might experience much longer moments, what we call upajara samadhi, for many minutes or even an hour, where the mind, the hindrances have gone, and the mind is very light, the body is light, no longer irritated by painful feelings in the body, and the mind can contemplate very well in upajara samadhi. We can still think, but our thoughts are not harmful or damaging to the mind. And the hiriyotapa is there, the mindfulness and wisdom can function. So you can see a thought as a thought, arising, passing away. You can see it as an nature, as not self. And we can contemplate, we can contemplate the body, contemplate feelings as they are. See the body as a body, rather than my body. Feelings as feelings, rather than my feelings. But even upajara samadhi will tend to fade again after a while. And it's harder to contemplate. It's not impossible, but it's harder when it fades. But if we keep practicing, well, maybe even sometimes we'll experience apana samadhi. Hours and hours of peaceful, one-pointed states of mindfulness of samadhi, where the mind is very firm. <clears throat> it can't contemplate think about things, but the firmness is a very revitalizing, refreshing, has a refreshing effect on the mind, brightens the mind for a long period. So withdrawing from that in the contemplation can be very effective. For longer periods, the mind is without the hindrances, can contemplate to see the arising and passing away of phenomena in the body, feelings, mental states. You can see how when we catch, latch onto different sense impressions, how suffering arises when you're attached to pleasure and you want to hold on to it. And then you get frustrated when you lose it and the desire to get more again. You can see that process very clearly, how suffering arises, how attachment forms fed by craving 
what the Buddha was talking about, what we've read and heard, becomes very, very clear to the mind. But even then the mind will still fade back to the hindrances will come in, complicating things again, hiding the truth, deluding the mind. So a lot of the practice is also about being very patient, enduring through periods where the mind is not very peaceful, enduring by keeping the sila, keeping the vinaya, keeping up the hiriyotapa, even though the mind might seem it's like it's bombarded by very unwholesome mental states. There's not enough clarity to let them go yet. It's the mindfulness has slipped. But there's enough wisdom and experience maybe to see a mental state and see it as unwholesome and just be determined and patient enough not to give it in, give in to it until the level of mindfulness comes up and we can actually abandon it skillfully with the knowing. As you practice more, you see how the different parts of the practice, the Vinaya training, the mindfulness training, the development of Hiriyotapa, and then wise reflection. All of this supports the deepening of our understanding. The mind gathers together more easily in Samadhi, the more um, effort we put into keeping our sila, the more careful we are with our speech, our actions, <coughs> the less we agitate the mind, the easier it is to meditate. If we take care with keeping right livelihood and not say, getting caught into our greed to go looking for requisites in the wrong way or whatever, if we put effort into that, then again the mind gathers together more easily, more quickly into samadhi, and then it's easier to contemplate. So the experience comes where we see the links, the causal links between the effort we put into the practice, sila, samadhi, and then wise reflection to develop wisdom. When we see that, then we understand what we have to do, how long it takes as far as getting results, purifying the mind. Well, it just depends on, again, on our character, what we've done before, how much effort we put into the practice. But over time, if we gain this experience, then whatever your character, whatever's happened before, you, you know you, you've got the skills to deal with your own uh, negative emotions, your own craving and attachment when it comes up. You know how to co correctly practice with it. So then you don't have to fear you know, sometimes we get afraid or fed up just thinking about how many defilements we have and thinking, oh, I'll never be able to do this, <clears throat> overcome these defilements. They just seem endless, keep coming up. But once you've understood how to practice, how to establish one, the one who knows, how to reflect wisely, then you don't have to worry so much. Whatever comes up, you just treat it all the same contemplate it, see it as an Ichya Dukkha Anatta and let go. So Ajahn Chah used to say, when you become established in right view, Samaditi, 
everything that arises into your experience it seems to be of equal value. Those wholesome states are still subject to anicca dukkha anatta. They're still impermanent. Unwholesome mind states are impermanent. Wholesome mind states are impermanent. There's this great equalization of all mental phenomena, physical phenomena, because mindfulness and wisdom is functioning very well with samaditi. Just seeing things the way they are, it's just that way. Things arise and pass away. You understand the causes. When the causes change, the thing passes, it's gone. You're not taking everything personally. This is me, mine, myself, taking ownership of every thought, every feeling, taking ownership of this body. There's this sense of these things are all physical and mental phenomena that arise and pass away according to their conditions. But they're not, you're not, the mind is not taking ownership or taking everything so personally anymore. So there's a sense of being at, at ease, even though kilesas are still present and coming up. You just have to treat them properly, then let them go. That's probably the, the ultimate happiness, you know, letting go of kilesa, not just through samadhi practice, but through wisdom. It's the ultimate happiness. Then the thought of going back to the lay life or just not practicing anymore doesn't come up because, you know, it doesn't mean anything. The mind is satisfied, content to keep practicing. So it just knows this is the only way to go. So anyway, I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.